there will never be genuine equality and inclusion in SBC life. That's the, the, the sum total result and practical effect of the seminary statement is that Southern Baptist mentality is that they will write the rules on race. They will control the conversation on race. They will determine when somebody violates the rule on race. Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and president, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship has valued theological education as a vital component of vocational ministry preparation for more than 25 years. It puts these words to action by investing in students who are current and future ministry leaders in CBF Life. The fellowship awards up to 70 scholarships annually to Baptist students enrolled in the Master of Divinity degree program at an accredited institution of higher education. For more information about all that CBF offers students, visit cbf.net slash seminary dash resources. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with Dwight McKissick. He's the pastor of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Arlington, Texas. He's a prominent black Southern Baptist who has been pushing the SBC over the past several years to take a stronger position in speaking out against racism. At the 2016 annual meeting, he successfully pushed the SBC to pass a resolution repudiating the Confederate flag. And the next year, he successfully pushed another resolution condemning white supremacy and the alt-right movement. Last year, in 2020, he unsuccessfully urged Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky to remove campus honors to its enslaver founders, something he's going to talk about in this episode and an issue that we covered prominently at Word and Way. And he's also going to be talking about some other issues involving racism and the Southern Baptist Convention that are happening right now. This includes... Southern Baptist Seminary presidents issuing a statement condemning critical race theory, which is a decades-old broad social science perspective that scholars use in analyzing issues of race, power, and society. And as you'll note in the interview, it seems to contradict and really even override a vote at the 2019 SBC annual meeting when messengers approved a resolution from the resolutions committee on this topic that was much more balanced than what critics of CRT are offering today. And so I was really excited to have Pastor McKissick on the program to talk about these really important issues that have been in the news. We've run some of his writings on our website and have quoted him in a number of articles on these topics. So here's my conversation with Dwight McKissick of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Arlington, Texas. Well, Dwight, first of all, thanks for joining us on the program. Brian, this is maybe the second or third time we may have talk, and I found you to be a very, to the point, straightforward, honest, factual, fair, and I have appreciated your perspective and wish it was more prevalent and dominant in SBC life. Well, well, thank you so much for those kind words, and, and I am having you on the show because I would echo that about you. I appreciated your prophetic voice. I have learned from you. We have run a couple of pieces that you have written last year on the website and 
quoted you in several articles, some of which were in one of the articles I wrote about you was in the, I think about the top five most read pieces on the site for the entire year. One of the pieces you wrote was in the top 20. So you're saying some things that I think people are interested to hear. So I'm really glad to have you on the program so that they can hear more from you. Well, I'm encouraged by that, Brian. Thanks for sharing it with me. Before we talk about some of the, the bigger issues that are happening in Southern Baptist life, I wonder if you could just first introduce yourself. Uh, you're a pastor, but this is also the last 10 months has been it's been a crazy time to be a pastor with a pandemic, which is I've heard a lot of pastors say that's not they weren't taught in seminary how to pastor during a pandemic. So I wonder if you can introduce your congregation and, and how things have been for you all personally. Well, very good question. One I'm not asked often, but uh, the last 10 months for every body in America in multiple ways has obviously been very different. But to introduce myself to your audience, I would say I'm 64 years old, born and raised in a city called Pine Bluff, state of Arkansas, where I basically resided until I was 27 years of age, uh, from doing my college years, 18 to 22, I attended Washington Baptist University in Arkadelphia, Arkansas, 75 miles southwest of my hometown, and uh, graduated with a Bachelor of Arts degree in what they now call Christian Studies. I believe they called it Pastoral Ministries when I was in school, but essentially the same major concentration. I married uh, at 20 years of age while I was a, um, well, a junior or sophomore, and my wife was a year younger. She was at Henderson State University in school across the street. She was studying to be an elementary early childhood school teacher. I was studying for the ministry, obviously. And uh, at 21 years of age, I was called a pastor to St. Peter's Rock Baptist Church, Pine Bluff, Arkansas. I pastored that congregation six years. So I was 27. And uh, from 1981-83, though, that church allowed me, while I was that pastor, to spend two summers on the campus of Southwestern Study, then Masters of Divinity degree. And they started satellite classes in Little Rock, Arkansas, at the Emanuel Baptist Church, where W.O. Vault was passed and Bill Clinton was governor and a member. And uh, I took satellite classes during that two year, during the regular semester terms in Little Rock while I pastored Pine Bluff. But in 1983 is when I came and planted the Cornerstone Church that I currently still pastor in Arlington. And once I arrived here, God so orchestrated and sovereignly uh, put me together with the uh, Southern Baptist Network of local churches, pastors, associations, state conventions. Uh, together, I you know, started from scratching my garage We've been averaging between, before the pandemic, between eight to 1,200 people on Sunday mornings, uh, four to 600 in Sunday school. God has blessed our work, and we've enjoyed, for most of this part, with a few hiccups, a really mutual, uh, beneficial relationship, I, I thought, with uh, the Southern Baptist Convention. But uh, given recent days of events, that could be coming to a halt. But back to the pastoring during the pandemic. Yeah, like the rest of us, about the second Sunday in March of uh, 2020, things happened so suddenly. And I'm one of those kind of people, 
because I was grew up in a church where a pastor was very committed to not close the church, even with inclement weather. His policy, which became the church policy, was you don't have to call a church we're having church. We will always have church. If nobody can't get here, we nobody just couldn't get here. But you never had to check to see if the church was open for worship. And I remember braving cold, ice, and snow several times to get to church. It may have been 10, 12, 15 of us by fire trying to stay warm. But my pastor had a, a no closed down church policy. And that was pretty, that became my policy as a pastor. We, my members know not to call. I don't care how bad the weather gets. We, I got the same no closed policy. Now, what I, what he didn't prepare me for was the pandemic. <laughs> he, that, that never occurred during my time of a, observing church from, I'll say, from birth, from 56 to the 21 or two years I was with him, before I started pastoring myself. And uh, But the law, the government, so my initial reaction was, we're not going to shut down, period. I mean, we're not, we're not going to shut down. I had that John MacArthur kind of attitude. But Texas law, I guess city law, court, county law, state law, the Saturday before we were going to have a service in spite of the pandemic, uh, the law said you can't do it. So I, I do believe in honoring the laws of the land. So once the government ruled that churches could not gather, or maybe only 10, I think they, that particular Sunday, they had a phase in Texas where only 10 people could gather. Well, that was just so impractical. And how do you select the 10? So we just decided not to have it. But yeah, so that began a series of uh, changes that how do you do Sunday school during the pandemic? How do you youth ministry, young adult ministry, children's ministry, uh, mentoring uh, ministries, uh, uh, prayer ministries, on and on and on. It just it brought on a whole new series of questions we were unprepared for about how do you do the Lord's work? How do you do the ministries you've been signed to do with the pandemic and law saying basically you can't assemble, which has been everybody's primary model. Thank God we had the technology and personnel we were live streaming before the pandemic. So having personnel in place, equipment in place, technology in place, it allowed us to transition over. I won't say seamlessly. We had to buy, did have to buy some additional equipment. We did have our audio tech guy got a huge raise out of this because he had to be in everybody's meeting and record it. He had to tie all the loose ends together, work around the clock. So it did require some adjustments for budgeting and, Letter right. I mean, it changed some things drastically. I had to adjust to preaching to from to a thousand folk every week to preaching to a, a, a camera. That was I. I literally cried the first Sunday that happened. The first Sunday I walked into that empty auditorium. It was like it was like the day I started the church in my garage with, with my wife and I and my kids. You know, it was it was just it was a a moment I wasn't prepared to see. I mean, one Sunday crowd of people next Sunday, your church is just literally empty. And then for the last eight or 10 months, uh, like everybody else, I've been fleshing that out along with my staff and God has been gracious to us and we're, we're, we're making some good adjustments. So we've seen a lot of positives. People are getting to know each other through Zoom and it, I, could, I could cite some blessings out of this that I would have thought that would become, including increased offerings that I find phenomenal, that people are giving better during this the last two months than they were before. Yeah, well, very good. Well, you know, it is it is encouraging to hear that the work of the church continues, even in a, a once-in-a-century pandemic. Yeah. Well, during this time also, 
you have been speaking out as you had before the pandemic on a number of issues. And you and I connected last year as you were pushing Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky to remove some honors on campus, campus buildings, a name of the undergraduate college and some others yeah. uh, that honor their four founders, all who enslaved black people who were unrepentant, white supremacist, even after the war. I wonder, you know, that, now, you know, that story, at least right now, is is over. The, the seminary voted to leave those building honors up. President Mueller was pretty strong in arguing that he would not take those names off. But I, I wonder if you could just talk about why was this important? You, you, you spent quite a bit of time speaking out on this issue. Why does it matter when we're talking about this history? First of all, it was like, I, I think the word some people use might be an, an epiphany, a, a, just a moment where it hit me for the first time. I'm not even uh, sure I'm aware of the day and time it, it, it occurred to me or it came across my radar screen that the name William Williams, Basil Manley, John Broaders, and uh, Boyce, James Boyce, the four founders of Southern Seminary were uh, white supremacists. They were advocates and architects of the, some way in, in FBC life of the Curse of Ham theory that's suggested or emphatically stated black people were inferior and had been assigned by God to be servants to white people in perpetuity. I I, I think I've come across that information maybe just two years earlier, when it, whenever Southern Seminary released a report about their their racist origins, and history, and past, and and how the uh, the funding, uh, the founders all owned slaves. Some has been as 50, 51 slaves, I believe, and the money generated from those slaves really became the financial floor or foundation of what kept Southern afloat and alive or, or how it got started. I think that was the first time I was made aware of that, of course, and it was it was kind of uh, startling knowing that, because I also knew some of those names. Basil Manley was a revered theologian, and college there is named after boys. I knew that was a broadest chapel. I mean, I was familiar with those names more in a his positive historical celebratory light. Nobody until then had talked about white supremacist, racist practices and beliefs. So, yeah, I, I, that's when I learned about that. So I guess when the um, whole issue came up with Al Mola, maybe as became in a face, I'm not sure, with his endorsements of Donald Trump, but something brought that back to my attention, seated at my desk one day. And what it hit me like, I thought of Briggs, the epiphany I talked about was, you're asking black professors and black students to daily be in an environment where the honor of white supremacists and architects of the curse of ham are celebrated. And I thought I'd just put myself in their shoes. But if I was a student there, a professor there, how would I feel about that? I thought about how uncomfortable that would make me. And of course, lately I, did, I discovered Basil Manley 
was the primary author of the articles of principles that all the professors are required to sign. The document itself is not necessarily theologically flawed, although it's I'm not a Calvinist, so uh, there are shades of providence and determinism and Calvinist sort of theology that is in that document. And of course, not exclusively, but to a large degree, the Calvinist theology drove slavery. The matter of fact, the slave ships, the chaplains, captains on the slave ships were Calvinists and taught that and prayed Calvinistic prayers. Uh, basically arguing that they were doing the will and work of God, honoring the following the kingdom of God by trafficking and slavery. And they developed a theology for it and practice. So Calvinism and slavery and white supremacy were all inextricably combined. So and, and so it's, it's just shades of Calvinist sociology and Calvinist views of sovereignty and providence in that document that when they were applied, they, they applied that to the slavery question and uh, an anthropological question as related to race. So I discovered Basil Manley's role in that and and Al Molo's arguing so much against the artist and it was toxic and poison at his roots. And what made it toxic and poison at his roots he, is more had to do with critical theory, not critical race theory. But because critical theory may have had some Marxian kind of influences, uh, atheistic influences, connections, if that's what made it poison and toxic, then I would say you'd have to apply that to the abstracts of principles as well. And it would be poison and toxin because of the white supremacist, racist roots. Those who who wrote that document and perpetuated it as Southern, well, to this day, it, it's part of the life of Southern Seminary. So when all that hit me, I thought, wait a minute, we just don't have to be at peace with this. This is something that's changeable. The names on those buildings and the celebratory atmosphere and spirits around those men on those campuses selling their cups and memorabilia. I said, library named after them, chapel named after them, a college named after them, that Williams Hall named after one of them. This doesn't have to be. This this can change. We know better now. We, we no longer hold that line of thinking at Southern Baptist. So I dad wrote a letter documenting what they, they knew that history because some of it I gleaned from a document that they produced and saying, hey, well, y'all want to rectify, want to reconcile, want to get things right. One of the ways you can do it is to change these names. So yeah, that is, it was just sitting at my desk one day uh, knowing that information, maybe for two years, but what I hadn't done up until that day, which was goes back to shortly after I started writing on this uh, several months ago, was I never thought this could be changed. This this is not etched in stone. Those names were not part of the sixty-six books of Scripture. You can't cancel those. Those names were not, you know, they were not in the canon. They were, they were, they could, they could be changed. And that's what prompted me to address that issue. Yeah, you know, you raise a, a lot of interesting, you know, things. I think we have to wrestle with our history. And to, to Mueller and Southern's credit, they did put out that report in December of 2018, acknowledging their past. Yeah. But they, they seemed unwilling to then take the next step. You know, Mueller refuses to to criticize the theology of those founders. He, he, he continues to claim that they were theologically orthodox. 
he, he'll, he'll say that slavery was wrong, but he won't say that their theology, when they preached slavery, was wrong. And then there seems to be, you know, a hesitancy to 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 really speak a clear word on that. And, and uh, we've watched over the past year, we've seen statues to to enslavers and Confederate monuments coming down across the country, really across the globe. Planned Parenthood in New York took off the name of their racist founder from their building. You know, at some point, there's a question of, you know, will Southern Baptists still be holding on to the lost cause, just like we helped start the lost cause back with those four men? Yeah, that's a question that many of us, particularly Black pastors, are being faced with in the SBC. How much of, of what we've heard the last 30 years about unity, healing, reconciliation, oneness, equality, moving forward. How much of that is lip service and how much of that is is reality and meaningful? And how do you quantify, measure that? I think the CRT debate, one of the important things that go out of this, most of it is, is not good in my judgment, but one of the good things that is going out of it is it's forcing Southern Baptists to have a discussion to move from just theory, concept, idealism about race. Everybody would say, well, God made all of us equal. God wants us unified. We, uh, the God people are one. I mean, that, that, that's nothing controversial about any of that. We all came from Adam and Noah. Not, fine. So we, we, we agree on the, on the the platitudes, the superlatives, the, the clear, obvious truth of Scripture. What we're finding out through the CRT debate is how do we, what do we do about systemic racism? What tools are acceptable and what's not? Who makes up the rules about what constitutes systemic racism? Who is authorized to communicate ideas about race and remain within the confines or context or orthodoxy of the Baptist faith and message. Who are the umpires and the referees to determine when a professor and by extension at the seminary, if the convention goes that route, what when a pastor or Sunday school teacher addresses these issues, who determine what violates critical race theory and who don't violate critical race theory? What What makes the authors or progenitors of critical theory toxic and poison, but the authors and progenitors of Southern Baptist theological documents and slavery uh, apologist positions, why aren't they toxic and poison? Those are, is forcing all of these questions now, and uh, the sons of Frederick Douglass, Booker T. Washington, W.B. Du Bois, Phyllis Wheatley, Sojourner Truth, we're, we're having to sit and, and let somebody else tell us what would be right and wrong taught on the subject of race. That is, that's staggering to me. And we are left out of that conversation and out of that decision making. Yeah, let's let's talk more about the critical race theory discussion because it is it is fascinating that all of this is happening at the same time. So, you know, Moeller and Southern Seminary decide in the middle of October that they're not going to change the building names officially. 
just barely a month and a half later, Moeller leads himself and the other five seminary presidents in Southern Baptist life, Anglo men, to issue this just really terse statement denouncing critical race theory as you know, against the Baptist faith and message. And doesn't really explain why, just it's, it's out of bounds because we say so. With no conversations with black Southern Baptist or scholars of critical race theory, which, and I, I, I do want to give you a chance to, to talk about this. I do want to note, though, just so that it's very clear that neither, neither of us, and I know this because you've said this as well, neither of us are proponents of everything that's taught in critical race theory. But there are a lot of really helpful insights in understanding the role that white supremacy has played in American society, in institutions, not just legal and political, but religious structures, like on the campus of Southern Seminary. Right. So there is this really... I don't know. I, I Frankly, a critical race theory scholar would look at a meeting of six white men denouncing critical race theory as like, wow, this is kind of the whole poster child for, you know, the problem that we have in our society still with systemic racism. I don't think it's a stretch to say the most articulate and perhaps the best educated person who has studied as just a matter of passion and hobby on his own, but has a Ph.D., in a subject where he had to interface with critical race theory, Dr. Curtis Woods, who was no longer at Southern Seminary, I think re re resigned in part because he didn't feel the support of Al Mola in the same way he can support Walter Strickland out at Southeastern and, and, and Dr. Woods is now pastoring a, a really large 2,000 members or so I'm told church in Elizabethtown, Kentucky, which is right outside of Louisville, that's predominantly Anglo. So that's, that's to the credit of Southern Baptist and to the credit of Dr. Woods. But uh, you had Keith Whitfield, who was learned in the area of critical race theory. You had Jared Wells. You had about four PhDs on that committee and a good mixture. That was one of the most diverse racially, gender, generationally committees in SBC history who made up 2019 resolution committee and they brought back a recommendation as you said it recognizes there's some serious flaws and some missteps and things out of bounds with critical race theory but as a broke clock is right twice a day you know there are some things here that's that are beneficial they took a very and they made sure that the bible baptist faith message would be supreme over anything you might find in critical race theory they brought a very balanced, fair, honest recommendation. The convention voted in favor of it. The question is, because two or three pastors rattled, Tom Askell, Tom Buck, whoever else, conservative Baptist network, two or three state conventions rattled. I know the Southern Baptist Texas Convention rattled. One or two more. Then the presidents decide you know, they, these people are weaponizing money against us if we don't change, if we don't come up with a strong statement against critical race theory. And without even considering black churches and pastors, how this might impact them, they just decide. As you say, with no consultation with scholars in the area of critical race theory, totally overlooking that, that committee that had about faculty members from three of those seminary only. That's which is a major thing in and of itself. Defying the vote of a 
HBC convention. That's, that's amazing itself. They just decide, well, it's un, it's incompatible with the Baptist faith mission. It's a legal theory. It's a social theory. It it, it should be incompatible with the Baptist faith mission. But they announced that as if there's a lot of things incompatible with the Baptist faith message that they haven't bothered to to denounce. Why 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 profile critical race theory is one you're going to denounce? And when you think about it, there is a latitude allowed on SBC life on historic premillennialism versus dispensational premillennialism. Even young creationists versus older creationists, you know, they could they can allow for diversity of thought in several areas. Why so tight on this? And this issue dealing with race is baffling to me. And, and particularly, you know, in the year 2020, when we saw, you know, a movement for racial justice around the country, that in, in that year, in the same year that Moeller said that the enslaver founders of Southern Seminary were still theologically orthodox, yet if you are a scholar who uses critical race theory to examine systemic racism, you're out of the theological bounds. It really seemed to be a pretty tone-deaf read of where we are and where we need to be as Christians and as a nation. Absolutely. One of the most disappointing things about this discussion is to discover that a lot of decisions are driven by the political and economic more than they are theological, biblical, and moral. Kind of like what we see happening in Washington, D.C. today. Shortly after the insurrection, public senators saw that as highly offensive, obviously against the law, maybe an impeachable offense, and, you know, having been maybe betrayed by a president who's supposed to protect our country, and and he would make such a speech that generated excitement and contributed to the attack on the Capitol. Now, fast forward two or three weeks later, oh, it's, it's, uh, it's over with, he's no longer in office, why are we wasting time on this? If a person breaks the law, you got to establish a precedent for the next president who may choose to go in this direction. That if she or he do anything close to this, that we got a, a mark and a set that we, the Congress will not tolerate this. The people of America, the Senate will not tolerate this, but, but because of political reasons and some with monetary reasons, we let that trump our decision, make it over common sense. I mean, that that violation of laws was committed in real time right before the world. I mean, you don't need much. It's all, you heard the speech. You saw the action. I mean, you, one of them testified that he was on the phone during the uh, insurrection, smiling and you know, gleeful and wanting to know why everybody else in the White House wasn't happy with him to see this happen. It was a Republican Senator that reported that, but yet at this point, we we will allow politics and I guess a financial base cause us to go against crime committed in broad daylight. So I, I think some of that's happening in the SBC too on this critical race theory matter. The the influence of these state conventions and the the people who they would rather appease that group and see us as 
as Mola says, extreme and marginalize us, dismiss our concerns in order to satisfy those two or three Southern state conventions. In many ways, this mirrors that we're back to the Civil War almost. Yeah, you know, when, when Mueller made that comment earlier this week, uh, an Associated Press piece that you, you were also profiled in, his argument wasn't that he was right. It was that he was in the mainstream, that, you know, he was representing the majority of Southern Baptists. And I guess we'll wait and see, you know, if, if that's where the votes are, but that therefore the the, the rest of you were, were just extreme. If you criticized him, you're just an extreme. And, and yet that's, you know, that's where the prophets have always been is in the margins and on the edges, not, you know, you mentioned earlier in our conversation, Mueller endorsing the president uh, for reelection, despite in 2016 saying that, you know, character matters, just like right. you said during Bill Clinton. I, I, I was a teenager in the 90s and I was taught in my Southern Baptist church that character matters. And now when I when I say that, you know, the last five years, I'm, I'm called a liberal. <laughs> uh, and Mueller held that, that ground in 2016. Unlike Russell Moore, he didn't in 2020, despite the president's clear record of embracing and encouraging white supremacy, not only before his presidency, but during his presidency, really is, I mean, I, you know, for 80% of white evangelicals voted for the president. I mean, in that regard, Mueller is in the mainstream, but I, I'm not sure that that's where he should be. Well, I'm, I'm glad you gave me a chance to revisit that because some of the public remarks that I've been quoted or cited or referenced in, it, it would appear that my objection to Mola voting Republican would be my particular objection to Donald Trump. That's not the basis for my objection to Mola voting Republican. I respect any man or woman, right? Any citizen's the right to vote for whomever they wish. I mean, that is... So the fact he, he's voting Trump is not my objection. My objection is he announced it on a broadcast that's funded by the Southern Baptist Convention. Mm -hmm. He announced it as, as president of a Southern Baptist institution on Southern Baptist soil using Southern Baptist-funded equipment. He clearly he, he announces it being insensitive to a diverse student body, perhaps even a faculty that would have political views. I, I don't know in the capacity of President of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and then the capacity of on a, you know, the, the radio show and the briefing and all, all, of, all the support systems that's provided by corporate program dollars, you are affirming and promoting Donald Trump. That's my objection, not who he voted for. That's his business. I don't know who the other five presidents voted for, and don't, that's their business. Mm -hmm. But the fact that you would promote or endorse Trump with resources directly or indirectly provided by the SBC and on SBC time, therein is my objection. Not the fact he voted for Trump, but the vehicle and the mechanism he used to get the message out that he voted for Trump. That's a good word, a good distinction. Endorsement and voting are, are, are dramatically different acts, and particularly yeah. you know, the way the way that endorsement occurred. I also wanted to ask you about the, the January 6th. You mentioned the, the insurrection, and in one of those weird coincidences of timing, the insurrection at the Capitol where we saw white supremacist symbols, we saw Christian nationalist symbols in the mob, 
That same day, there was a meeting with the white seminary presidents and several black Southern Baptist leaders, SBC president and so forth, to talk about critical race theory. Yeah. And you were part of that. And I know that yeah. there's probably things that you can't share from that meeting, but I wonder if, if you could share a bit about what happened in that conversation. Uh, I know really essentially nothing changed. The, the seminary presidents came out and said, well, we heard them, but you know, we should have talked to them first, but we still would have done the same thing. But I wonder what your assessment was of that conversation. You are right that there is a great deal of confidentiality and privacy that sort of went into uh, greed upon those participating in that meeting. So as I want to honor that to the extent I can and not, you know, uh, go over details. But I think what I said earlier was it was a polite, respectful conversation on both sides. I think a content-filled conversation. I think both sides may have understood each other a little bit better. But at the bottom line, as you said, nothing actually changed. If a moment come out and say, even had the conversation happened before, that wouldn't have had an impact. That was really disheartening and disappointing to hear from him, which says to, to me, and I got a text from a black Southern Baptist just yesterday, saying, basically what they say is they don't want to hear nothing we got to say. Nothing we got to say matters. But you just told us what our thinking is is not important to you all. Why are we on this bus if what we think has zero effect on your decision making or what you think? So, um, yeah, it was you know it, it was it was polite, informative, but I thought the the history of black Christians, black people, and black Southern Baptists were largely devalued in this whole process. And that's, that's a, kind of about all I, I want to say about that, people. Yeah, that's good. I, 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 we want to respect the confidentiality. You know, this summer is obviously going to be, assuming that the Southern Baptist Convention meeting happens this year, it was canceled last year from coronavirus, will be a, a significant meeting because of all of these issues that we've been talking about, as well as the presidential race, which for the last 14 months, Al Mohler had been the only candidate, and there are now at least, I think, three other candidates in the last two weeks that have jumped in. You've endorsed one of them, and you've left the state convention, one of the two state conventions in Texas, and you know, you're know you kind of watching to see what happens with the SBC this summer. I wonder if you could just tell us what your what your your hopes and fears are this year at the, the SBC meeting. To be honest, I, I'm not optimistic that um, things will change. I think, again, for political reasons, economic reasons, the convention is likely to reverse the decision they made in 2019. If they don't reverse it by rescinding it, I understand parliamentary procedure-wise they may not be able to rescind it. But they'll maybe adopt a new resolution that's radically different from the resolution out of 2019. They may in some way formally adopt the seminary president's statement on critical race theory. I suspect that things will get worse 
then that I think the uh, statement that's being made to us is that there will never be genuine equality and inclusion in SBC life. That's the, the, the sum total result and practical effect of the seminary statement is that Southern Baptist mentality is that they will write the rules on race. They will control the conversation on race. They will determine when somebody violates the rule on race. And consequently, it, it explains why you still have all white entity heads and that there is an attempt to embrace you as, at a theoretical level in scripture on what, what race is. And, and, I, and I think that's genuine on that part. There is not an attempt to fully include you and involve you in all facets of SBC life. They're honoring that DNA. That's why Mola will not change the names at Southern and uh, the best way I know to illustrate this, I saw a movie this past Saturday night with my wife and a couple of my adult children. Uh, it was about one night in Miami. And, uh, the movie dealing with, with Cassius Clay, who the next day, I think, after that fight, announced he was Muhammad Ali. He, um, he, he was accompanied by Malcolm X. But the movie also featured not only Cassius Clay and this, that historic win over Sonny Liston. You're not old enough to remember that, but I saw that. <laughs> I was like nine or 10 years old when all that happened. So it was fascinating to me. And, um, but it featured had a role for Jim Brown, the famous football player from Cleveland running back, Sam Cook, famous gospel singer. Of course, Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, and Elijah Muhammad. But the movie opens up with Jim Brown doing the off season in, height of his career he's visiting back in St. Simon Island, Georgia, his hometown and that was a family friend, white guy, based on the house, you know, I said very wealthy white guy. He's Jim Brown just paid a visit to a family friend, drove up in his convertible Cadillac and knocked on the door and the man's adult daughter in her early twenties seemed like came to the door when she discovered it was the great Jim Brown, highly welcomed the man, invited him to take a seat on the front porch and she went and got her dad, or they came out and just marveled and Googled and gagged over Jim Brown, the old family friend who'd gone off to do well in the NFL. They sat on the porch and enjoyed a good conversation. Daughter brought him lemonade. And the street man, you know, after a visit of some time, the daughter said to her dad that he had planned to do something with furniture, move some furniture around in the house. And, and so Jim Brown just thought he, volunteer to say, hey, you got to, you know, you need some strength. You need some help to move furniture and change. He said, I'll come in and help you. And and then Mr. Uh, whatever his name was, I, I, I have to need to look that up again. He looked at Jim Brown. The, the business was about over. It was coming to a, you know, a logical end. And it had been such a great visit, a friendly visit. Who would turn down help when you need help like that? And he looked at Jim Brown and says, well, now, Jim, you know we don't allow niggas inside our house. Wow. They had a long front porch. A lot of chairs on it, a lot of place to rest food and plates and drinks, you know, shelter screened in, beautiful southern front porch. Great visit out on the front porch. Access to the entirety of the front porch. It sort of wrapped around the house and you know, 
great front. You're welcome on the front porch. We can fellowship on the front porch. We can eat together, drink on the front porch. We can have great conversation on the front porch. But we don't allow niggas inside our house. Ah, that's kind of how I'm feeling about the SBC. We'll let you sit out on the front porch. We'll let you have a great conversation. We'll even let you preside out on the front porch, be president for a year until the front porch. But what we're not going to do is let you make policy, is let you have a significant voice or any part of the conversation about race. We're not going to include your entity head. We're not going to let you inside the house. And we're not going to let you move the furniture around in the house. We could just only enjoy your smile with you on the front porch. Dwight, that I think is... Um... It's a good note to end our conversation because it is. I think it just captures the whole conversation so well. And, I, and, I, and I'm sorry that you and so many others are feeling unwelcomed. I mean, several Black Southern Baptist pastors have left the convention over the last few months. And I, I know that, you know, you, you've left the state convention and, and might leave the SBC. And you shouldn't have to fight this hard to be welcome. I don't think changing, and that's so disheartening. And... I cannot dignify, I cannot betray the history of my people by remaining in a, in a conviction that would make these kinds of decisions in 2020 without even really caring what we thought. And when they hear it, it doesn't change them at all. I'm not going to desecrate the graves of Frederick Douglass and Benjamin Babica and W.B. Du Bois, Booker T. Washington, Phyllis Wheatley, Sir John of Truth. Harriet Tubman. I'm not going to desecrate that grade. Monitor the key. And participate in a system that would leave us on the front porch. Well, Dwight, thank you so much for your time with us. Thank you for your challenging words. I, I hope that more people will listen. You have a word that needs to be heard and a voice that needs to be heard. And I hope that you f continue to feel the strength of the Lord to continue to push forward, even when you're just marginalized and rejected as an extreme. Thank you so much for being with us. Brian, thank you for this time you've given me today. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist Without an Adjective. You can learn more about Dwight McKissick and follow some of his writing at his blog, dwightmckissick.wordpress.com. As always, you'll find us at wordandway.org. And don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook and head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review. It, it really does help more people to find the show. You can find easy-to-share links at podcast.wordandway.org. If you'd like to give to support this program, we greatly appreciate it. And all you have to do at wordandway.org is hit the donate button. And whatever you give there will help support the production of this podcast, as well as our website and monthly magazine. And speaking of that magazine, if you're not yet a subscriber, I have a special offer for you. Get half off your first year. Just go to tinyurl.com slash wwoffer. If you have any comments or feedback about this program, you can send those to me at bkaler at wordandway.org. Thanks for listening.